Good afternoon. Great to be back after two weeks away, and it is a busy day coming back to this chair. We're going to talk a bit later on in the program about the changes to border restrictions. This is the movement of Canadians and Americans across the Canada-U.S. border, people arriving back in Canada, what it means, the different age groups. We'll have all of those details and reaction to that a little bit later on in the program. Also coming up on the show, we're talking about why some BC restaurants are taking wild salmon off the menu, even though it is a very popular dish, especially in this province. We're going to check in with Ned Bell and talk to him about why this move is taking place. First, though, we want to talk about the easing of restrictions when it comes to long-term care facilities and what they look like as of today. Dan Levitt is joining us now, Executive Director of Tabor Village. Dan, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Great to be here and welcome back from your vacation, Jill. Thank you. What are things looking like today as far as visitation in long-term care facilities? Well, today is a great news story for, for seniors' care, for families, for, for workers who have really weathered a, a, a horrible storm for the past uh, 16 months. And we're so grateful to see that mask turnout being taken off and we're able to safely welcome family members back, um, kind of like we did be, before the pandemic. So family members are able to come and go as, as they please. They still have to screen uh, unvaccinated. Family members do have to follow the same precautions they followed before. But the great news is that those people who are vaccinated, the family members, they can resume their normal activities with their loved ones just as they did before the pandemic, as long as they screen in and show vaccination status. So that's really great news for all of us. And you kind of answered my question there as, as far as the showing vaccination status, because I know in the past, and not that it's the same thing at all, but when we've been talking about flu shots and masking and that, it was basically an honor system. But is there more of an actual checklist when people arrive in long-term care now? Yeah, there is. And that's a good comparison. I'm glad you brought up the influenza because that we, we could have done better um, how we handled influenza over the years. It was the honor system, as you said, and it wasn't really enforced. And now there are some enforceable guidelines. So, for example, when a family member, and the same thing with staff, when they come in, they do have to show their vaccination status. We record it the one time when they show it to us, and then we have that record, and then uh, we don't have to ask them again. But that's really important. They have that card and they show the evidence because we do have to report it, and we are expected to maintain um, that database uh, for the Ministry of Health so we can show that we're following the guidelines. So if somebody comes to visit a loved one or to come on site at a long-term care facility and they're not fully vaccinated, what happens in that scenario? So if they're not fully vaccinated, they still have to follow the same precautions that they did before. They still have to wear uh, the PPE like they did. And uh, we still have to maintain um, some level of safety to make sure that they're only visiting with their loved one in smaller groups um, than people who are Unvac- or who are vaccinated. The people who are vaccinated that really have all their freedoms restored to them. People who aren't, um, there are some restrictions um, on them, and perhaps this might be one of those things that helps them choose to have a vaccination if they're um, if medically health enough, healthy enough to have one. Uh, what about workers then and staff members at long-term care? Because we know the rates, it's not mandatory, and the rates aren't 100%. So what about employees that aren't vaccinated? Yeah, so employees who are not vaccinated, um, the same concern is that they have to show their vaccination status. We do have a record of all the employees that have been vaccinated, so we know who haven't been, and they have to basically follow the same rules as they did before, wearing um, their PPE, their masks and goggles, and uh, they don't have some of the same freedoms that have been restored to their colleagues. And again, I think this might be something um, as well as um, the rapid testing. They have to have um, 
point, point of testing as they enter the building three times a week. We haven't implemented it yet. We're waiting for more information on that. But that, those are safeguards we're putting in place to ensure that things like the Delta variant are not introduced into long-term care. We don't want to go back to where we were um, with all the outbreaks. So we need to make sure that we're doing everything possible, all the tools we have to safeguard the people who live in care and, of course, the co-workers. So would staff or uh, visitors or residents of the long-term care facilities, by simply looking around, would you be able to notice or would you know which staff members are vaccinated and which ones aren't? You would know by which ones are are not wearing uh, uh, PPE. So those who are wearing uh, PPE are likely the ones who are unvaccinated, although some of us may choose uh, to keep ours on, knowing that there's a possibility of of contracting um, COVID or something else in, in these buildings. So that's really the only way of knowing. So if you were a family member or you were um, a resident um, and uh, or a tenant living in, in uh, assisted living, um, you might know based on, on, their, uh, on what they're wearing. But another way is to ask them um, before you're being provided care. Right. Are, are you concerned at all that there could be tension or there could be even clashes if people see that and say, well, wait a minute, I've, I've been vaccinated. I'm looking forward to now this is things that are getting back to this form of normal. I don't want my caregiver to be somebody who's not vaccinated. Absolutely, Jill. I think that really is the biggest issue right now is that uh, family members, we have some here that have started a petition where um, they really don't want their mom being cared for by somebody who has been unvaccinated. And if you think about it, um, just in the general public, you have uh, one in five people who aren't vaccinated right now. And uh, we need to see those numbers going higher. And But to, to think that the, the people working in seniors care have any more responsibility than the general public, um, it, there's a disconnect there. So we think we have to really look at the role of healthcare workers and particularly thinking about um, if we didn't allow these people to work in seniors care, who would replace them? And um, they, they've been subject to um, some very tough um, working conditions. We're, we're exhausted um, you know, mentally and physically. In fact, we even have a, uh, a team here today uh, meeting with staff one-to-one looking at their psychological uh, PPE, um, you know, their, mental, their own mental health needs. So we have to really think about what it means to not be vaccinated and uh, how we can make sure that everyone feels um, in a way that they can care for seniors uh, to the best of, of their ability. What would you say, or do you know what the rates are of vaccination then in the Tabor Village or in, in the care homes that you oversee as far as staff members? Yeah, so um, one of our lowest rates is... Um, 53%. It is increasing. We're working diligently on increasing with one of our smaller sites. Um, at at an, another site, our highest rate is around 80%. Um, at, and actually, it's, it's growing towards 90 So there is a variable range in long-term care and assisted living in the province. And I think it's really important that we do everything possible to encourage people to get the vaccine and to make sure um, you know, science is um, helping us make our decisions. Uh, You make a good point that if suddenly the rules were changed and people weren't allowed to work in long-term care, there would probably be, uh, well, especially if we're talking about a a facility with a 53% rate, there would be uh, immediately a lot of vacancies. But there have also been those calls saying, we understand that we live in a country where there is not mandatory vaccination, and that's fine, but do some workplaces warrant having that? And there have been calls from people saying, if you want to work in long-term care, they would support the idea of mandatory vaccine. How do you respond to that? Well, it's, it's an interesting dilemma because you have the, 
the uh, the workforce? How, how, where would you find people to to replace them? Um, unless you were able to f- somehow um, move the, those um, employees, those healthcare workers who were going to be vaccinated, and move them into long-term care and move those out, I, I'm not sure how that would exactly work. Um, but I, I do think um, we have to look at that balance, and it's always the balance we're, we're looking at is the safety of the people who live here versus independence. And same thing with um, the workers. So to suggest that all the workers in long-term care and assisted living should be mandated to be vaccinated, I think it's it's something that you know from your heart you definitely think that way emotionally. It makes a lot of sense, but practically um, it's really difficult to implement. And there's all sorts of uh, workers' rights. There, there's a um, union collective agreements. Um, there, there are many things we have to consider before we actually go go there. But I do think we have to really, as a society, um, think about. Um, you know, how do we ensure the rights, the safety rights of um, healthcare workers at the same time ensuring the rights of older persons who live in care and really have no choice but to be here? So that's something we really have to uh, find an, an answer to. And uh, it would be so helpful to people working here um, and living here in the families if, if there was some um, definition around that and having an answer to that. That'd be a great thing if we could resolve. All right. And on a lighter note, just before I let you go, how are people responding? Or have you noticed a difference, like you said, right off the top, as of today, things look back to normal a bit as far as people coming and going and being able to have those visits and doing so uh, like they were doing pre-pandemic? Yeah, it, it feels kind of like we've taken the, the locks off the front door of our buildings and that we've welcomed families back with open arms um, before the pandemic. You come and go as you please. Um, now it's much more like that. And I was talking to um, a family member whose, whose mom just moved in the past couple of days. And uh, if this had happened 16 months ago, as we all know, um, that would have been kind of goodbye for, for months. And um, he, he's, she's moved in and, and, and they're visiting as if nothing's changed. Uh, so that's what we should be seeing. We should be seeing those relationships, the hugging, um, the embracing, holding hands, the stuff that we haven't been able to do ourselves um, we should see that um, all the time, and uh, we can't wait to have those um, barbecues and summer events that we're famous for at Tabor Village, and uh, I can't wait to see um, that and post it on social media. I'm looking forward to um, seeing everybody back together. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Anytime, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, some BC restaurants are taking wild salmon off the menu. It's a bit of a political statement. It is to raise some awareness about overfishing and the declining salmon stocks in this province. And joining me to talk a bit more about why this move is taking place is Ned Bell, the chef, also a partner with the Naramata Inn. Ned, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's a little smoky skies, but... uh... You know, we're we're dealing with all kinds of climate change all over the place, aren't we? Yeah, I, I guess, you know what, I hadn't thought of that, but I realize now we're talking to you from a place where you're dealing with wildfires and smoke from wildfires, and we're also talking uh, exactly that, about the declining fish stocks as well. We are, yeah, it's a... Uh... It's it's a it's complicated. It's a it's a it's a time of concern for our ecosystem and for our species, and specifically for some of the keystone species that we love so dearly here in British Columbia. You know, wild BC salmon, one of my very favorite fish to cook and and harvest and and consume and and really showcase. And uh, you know, it, this is nothing new. Truthfully, I mean, fish. <laughs> Oh, Ned, your phone cut out there a little bit. Oh, Ned, can you hear us? 
We're going to get Ned back on the line. You just never know what's going to happen when talking about uh, things live on the radio. So we're going to try and reconnect with Ned Bell and talk a bit more about why some restaurants are taking wild salmon off the menu. Wanted to let you know as well, a bit later on this hour, we are going to have that. Well, we've had that update about border crossings and what it means for fully vaccinated, not only fully vaccinated Canadians, also fully vaccinated Americans and people crossing back and forth. We're also going to take a look at people flying into this country and talk a bit more about that. We have Len Saunders coming on, who's an immigration lawyer, and Claire Newell is going to join us as well for her reaction to that. I think we have reconnected with Ned. Ned, can you hear me okay? Hi, Jill. Sorry about that. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. That happens. Uh, you were talking a bit about, I, I mean, it is when people hear this, I think some of the reaction is going to be, wait a minute, that's one of the, the signature foods of this province. And we're so proud of how fantastic BC salmon is. So why are some restaurants taking it off the menu? Well, I mean, gosh, it is an incredibly complex and complicated conversation. Truthfully, wild BC salmon, yes, you're right. It's, it's, it's one of the most iconic and important species, not only for our, our ecosystem and for our First Nations peoples and Indigenous peoples for 12,000 years, long before we came here to this wonderful province that we're fortunate enough to, uh, to call home now. And, and, you know, as a steward of the ecosystem, I feel, um, you know, I feel it important to pay attention to Mother Nature when she, uh, when, she, uh, when she causes alarm. And, you know, wild salmon has been in trouble, wild BC salmon has been in trouble in specific areas in the province for, for, for decades, truthfully. And, uh, you know, what I have chosen to do along with some of my peers this year specifically is to hit pause. Um, you know, does that mean that you that you won't see wild salmon on menus? Some menus, you, you certainly will. And does that mean that we don't want to pay a fair price for a fisher's catch? Of course we do. Um, but I know that my voice uh, hopefully matters when it comes to what's on my menus. And uh, and so I've chosen to, to hit pause temporarily. Is it more, do you think, though, is the move to raise awareness about this? Or do you think it will actually, is the number of salmon that we're talking about that would be otherwise served in restaurants, is that number actually going to make a difference? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a great question. Do I think it's going to make a difference? No, of course it's not going to make a difference. I mean, wild salmon, you know, have all kinds of things that are thrown at it from climate change, overfishing, mining, forestry, predators, ship traffic, uh, you know, whether it's commercial fishing, sport fishing. Um, you know, we, we, we are so fortunate that Mother Nature still gives us wild fish and it's not our right to eat it all. And so when, when, when the alarm bells are, are rung, um, whether it be political or otherwise, and we certainly know that this is a, that this is a political conversation, um, you know, I, I feel as though we need to pay attention. And the thing about wild salmon, um, it, you know, are we talking about wild BC salmon or are we talking about wild salmon? In- oh, Ned, your phone has cut out again. Are you there? Ned, can you hear me? 
All right, we're going to have to try and touch base with Ned again. I know phone lines, we've reached Ned in the Naramata area, and I know phone lines there are extremely busy, uh, given the fact that there are wildfires burning in the province and people are very busy. Let's try and reach him again, though, because he was right in the middle of a point that I was was interested in hearing the other half of that sentence. So we are going to try and reconnect with Ned Bell on this. Again, we're talking to Ned about the fact that some restaurants, uh, himself included in this, they've taken wild BC salmon off the menu. And again, we were talking about the fact this is not going to be one move that saves dwindling salmon stocks, but it is a move that is certainly raising awareness about this. I think we've reconnected with Ned. Ned, can you hear me now? Jeez, I keep getting dropped. I'm very sorry. That's okay. I, I mentioned, you know, lots of things are going on today, so it's very, very busy. Um, you mentioned, uh, you, you were just making a point, and I'm glad you brought this up because you were making the point of, are we only talking about wild salmon in BC? Uh, as you know, salmon don't know the borders, uh, the oceans, whether they're in a Alaskan salmon or they're coming from the States. So are we talking specifically BC salmon or is this a bigger picture? Well, certainly this this uh, move by the federal government and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, you know, is targeting British Columbian salmon and specific areas where BC wild salmon is harvested. Um, you know, it's complicated. I mean, whether it's recreational fisheries and how much fish they draw, whether it's whether it's commercial fisheries and how much fish they draw, whether it's big business fisheries. I mean, it is a very complex conversation. And, you know, you asked me before about whether or not, you know, me not having salmon on the menu is going to is going to move the dial. I mean, of course, it's not, you know, I'm not I'm not foolish enough to think that that is going to happen. But, you know, one thing that I have learned by listening over the last 20 years in sustainable seafood is to pay attention to our Indigenous peoples, and they are thinking ahead to seven generations from now. Will there still be wild salmon for our children's children's children? And I want to make sure that I was one who listened and, and potentially had a, an impact, however small it may be. And I mean, listen, I'm, I care deeply about fishers and paying a fair price for their catch, whether they be commercial or recreational. But, you know, I also am, I'm not tied to anybody anymore. I can have my own opinion, and I really want us to consider, heavily consider the species that we consume. The fact that we still get to eat wild seafood, you know, Mother Nature still gives it to us, and, and climate change and overfishing are two of the largest threats that face our world's oceans, wherever the fish is coming from. And yes, you, you said it. I mean, Russia, Japan, Korea, United States, Canada, Pacific salmon swims and touches all of those countries in its life. And sometimes when you just see wild salmon on the grocery store, you don't know that it's wild BC salmon. You don't know that that money is staying in a fisher's and a community's pocket. Um, and, and that's what I'm, you know, hopefully trying to do if this pandemic has taught us anything it's to it's to support the communities we live in whether it's the small community of naramata that i live in whether it's the okanagan nation alliance where i get my fish you know uh, or got some fish last year that i served in my restaurant because it swims up the columbia river and into the okanagan river and because of some incredible work done over the last couple of decades we actually now have wild salmon swimming back into lake okanagan and lake Osoyoos. i mean that's that's what we're talking about. And, you know, I, I think aquaculture is part of a conversation here, you know, wild and farmed, you know, we, we eat a lot of farmed animals. Why, why all of a sudden, um, you know, are we, are we uh, 
adverse to eating responsible aquaculture when most of the protein that we consume comes from farmed animals. So, yes, this is a wild BC salmon conversation, but it's really complex. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, but wasn't sure if that should be or is part of this conversation. Because on the one hand, there's a movement to shut down farms, especially salmon farms. We're not talking about BC or BC salmon, but salmon farms in this province. Do you think we need to relook at that and how that could be done in a way that people perhaps aren't opposed to it? <laughs> Go to my website, medbell.com. You can read all about what I think. Uh, in an advocacy piece I wrote a number of years ago. I mean, I have been, I have been to, to the well and back when it comes to fighting for responsibly grown fish and responsibly harvested fish that happens to be wild. I mean, this is an this is an and conversation, not an or conversation. You know, arguably 60% of the seafood that we consume globally is farmed. That's only going to increase because we keep hammering the oceans. You know, like we need to, we need to really look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize what are we talking about here? Are we talking about elite protein at, in the center of the plate? Or are we talking about the 3 billion people that need responsible and sustainable seafood? Well, truthfully, they just need seafood for their daily source of protein. You know, North Americans were pretty fortunate to have access to whatever we want at any moment. And, you know, for relatively inexpensive. And I, you know, I like to say there's no such thing as cheap food. <laughs> Something somewhere or someone has paid the price. And, you know, seafood is no different. And I think we need to pay a premium for wild caught seafood, especially wild Canadian, wild British Columbian seafood, because it's some of the best in the world, because we have the Pacific Ocean that is just you know, alive with with beautiful abundance. And, and, you know, I'm not naive to think that that is completely true. There's all kinds of challenge that we throw at the Pacific Ocean and all the oceans. Every second breath we take comes from the ocean. But anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on. Aquaculture is important. And so is knowing where your wild seafood comes from and being willing to pay a, a fair price for it. So by taking it off the menu this summer for me, this season, I should say, um, you know, it's a move because I'm replacing it with with an Arctic char grown in the middle of an Oliver, with a rainbow trout grown in the middle of Kamloops, with a with a steelhead salmon grown over on Vancouver Island. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of options for pink fish, you know, which is what people want in the center of their plate. All right, uh, Ned, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the program and for uh, joining us to talk more about this. I'm sure this conversation is going to continue, but thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. And if you have an opportunity to, to get access to wild BC salmon, pay a fair price for it, cook for your family. I mean, that is a gift that only we in BC have, and, uh, and that is what I'm looking forward to doing again next season with my family. Well, if you have been paying attention to the announcement today, you know there is an update when it comes to who can do what when traveling across the border, specifically the border between Canada and the United States, and what it means for people who are fully vaccinated. Let's bring in Len Saunders, immigration lawyer based in Blaine with Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the program. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. So what did the new rules or the restrictions being eased, what does this mean today? Well, for American citizens and green card holders in the U.S., it's great news because it opens up Canada again for your just discretionary travel 
in uh, in early August. So I think it's fabulous news for people, especially in where you know where I am in Blaine, right by the border. Uh, and I know when you've been on the program talking about this in the past, you, you've talked about how you've spent a very large amount of time in Peace Arch Park doing your immigration business. So does this mean you as a professional, you would be able to cross the border and do that freely? Well, I'm a dual citizen, so I've been you know permitted to enter Canada during the pandemic. But because of the, the 14-day uh, quarantine, that was a huge deterrent. Now, with all of this kind of opening up of Canada to fully vaccinated Canadians returning home like I could, or to American citizens, um, I think you're going to see less people meeting at the park because there's going to be, you know, a not those huge restrictions on the quarantine. That was killing anyone going back and forth over the border. Uh, Yeah, and certainly uh, people, uh, much the same as what you just said about that, is even though you could technically come across, uh, you're not going to do that on a day trip or do that on a whim, knowing you have to quarantine uh, for 14 days. Does this make a difference as far as people who are flying back and forth? Oh, absolutely. So once again, that was a massive deterrent. Most Canadians... We're not flying back into Canada from the U.S. They were all coming into Bellingham or Seattle and walking north. Now with this hotel quarantine being eliminated, especially for Americans flying into Canada, you're going to see a lot more people just driving across. I bet those border lineups get a lot longer now. So you're going to start seeing a gradual kind of increased traffic. You're not going to see it similar to what it was pre-pandemic with thousands of people every day driving back and forth through the local ports of entry, but you're definitely going to see an uptick of travelers. Do you think this is going to have an impact on people living in Point Roberts? Um, Well, see, most of the Point Roberts people, they couldn't leave unless it was for essential or coming over to this area of Whatcom County. The problem is, There's nothing reciprocal going into the U.S. It's amazing how the American government has not done this kind of gradual reopening. You know, the Canadian government last month uh, made this exemption for Canadians who are fully vaccinated. They're now making this exemption for Americans and green card holders. The following month in September is going to be for all foreign nationals, whereas the American government, they've just been very firm on full closure no exemptions for Canadians coming into the U.S. by land. Now, you can still fly, but most people don't want to fly down when they can just drive down and then drive back. I've also been hearing some confusion over Canadians flying to the United States, that things changed under the the Joe Biden administration, that there are, in fact, some quarantine rules, or it's different depending on where you fly to. No. So since the pandemic started, any Canadian can go to any Canadian airports with pre-flight inspection and clear U.S. customs and enter the U.S. via air for any reason. There's no essential travel restrictions. The only thing that changed under Biden was they required a negative COVID test, not vaccination, but just a negative test in order to fly into the U.S. Well, that's easy to get. I've heard at Vancouver Airport, you can get it literally on the spot. So, Flying has pretty much remained the same over the last year and a half. And, you know, maybe that's why the Americans haven't had any of these little exemptions. Because if a, if a Canadian really wanted to come to the U.S., all they have to do is fly. It's that easy. But it's very inconvenient. Right. Um, so as far as the rules changing today or as a, the announcement today that things are going to change uh, that 
fully vaccinated U.S. citizens can start entering Canada August 9th. Other travelers allowed uh, with the full vaccination allowed September 7th. Like you said, you're expecting them. We're going to see uh, some increase in the in the cross border traffic or in what in people going back and forth. Do you think more changes or what other changes would people like to see? Well, I think, as I was saying earlier, most Canadians want to see a rep, you know, you know, the Americans make a similar sort of uh, reciprocity, you know, opening up the U.S. for Canadians who are vaccinated to be able to drive down. I don't think that's going to happen. I've given up guessing. I was very, very certain that the U.S. border was going to fully reopen on June 21st. All of the indications said that. Most of the local officers told me that. Since then, it's been dead silent. So at this point, I'm expecting a full closure again for another 30 days on July 21st in two days. And I'm actually expecting it to probably go on until the fall. What's interesting with these new provisions by the Canadian government, for them to make exemptions to the border closure, I think because they're making these exemptions as far in as September, you're going to see the closure extend at least until September the 21st on the Canadian side, if not further. So my guess is sometime in the fall, maybe we'll see a full reopening on both sides. Maybe. I know because I remember you saying that everything you were hearing was that it could even be a unilateral move by the United States for the border reopening in June. Do you think there was that plan? And with the Delta variant or with the numbers, things changed? Or do you have any indication of that? Well, I don't know the reasons why they kept it closed. Maybe it's political, but... You know, I've been going to Mariners baseball games in Seattle, full capacity. Disneyland has opened. This country has opened up, and it's almost back to normal, in my opinion. So there's no reason to have the U.S. border still closed. So who knows why the Americans are keeping it closed? I would love to be in front of the president during a press conference and say to him, why is the border still closed? There's no reason to have the U.S. border still closed, especially when Canadians can fly in with no restrictions. And everything seems to be back to normal in this country. Now, I understand, you know, the Canadian government doing a slower opening. When you hear the numbers down here, they're starting to increase. So I understand why the Canadian government has been doing a full or a a slow reopening. But I have no idea why the Americans have done nothing. And if I was the prime minister, I'd be very frustrated with the lack of action by the U.S. government. At some point, they have to open up this border. It just it can't remain closed indefinitely. Uh, you make an interesting point that at this point, a Canadian could fly anywhere in the United States, even to some of the states where we're seeing those vaccination rates flatten. They haven't, they're not going up, or if they are, they're trickling uh, the number of cases where the U.S. was so quick out of the gate getting vaccinations, but that plateau. Uh, so do you think that perhaps it's that, that, that in those states where people simply aren't getting vaccinated, we're not getting up to the 80% or anywhere near it, that's where the concern is? Perhaps maybe that's why the why the president he's seen these numbers plateau with, you know, not you know the a, a bare majority of the U.S. population being vaccinated, whereas in Canada I think you're up to eighty percent has had the least one shot. So perhaps that is. But you know I'm at the point now I've stopped guessing. Who knows? Like I would love to in the future find out why this border, especially on the American side, has remained closed tight for so long. It's almost been a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Was today's announcement then, I know there was a lot of talk and anticipation of it. Was this what you expected? 
Uh, on the Canadian side, absolutely. So once the Prime Minister announced last month for this gradual reopening for Canadians, I think everyone expected Americans being able to come north soon and then eventually other foreigners. So I'm actually, you know, I'm not shocked by what's been announced in Canada, but I am shocked that there's been absolutely no announcements on the American side, zero. All right, Len, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again. Always great to have you on the program talking about this. Uh, Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. We were just talking about the wildfires currently burning in this province. 37 wildfires of note burning right now. And there are 299 active fires in the province. And crews working very hard to make sure and save as much as they can. There are, however, 20 evacuation orders, another 51 evacuation alerts currently in place. This story is kind of, well, it is connected to that. And the SBCA is making it more attractive to adopt an animal. And this is so that they can create more shelter space. And joining me to talk more about this is Laurie Chordick, General Manager of Community Relations with the BC SPCA. Laurie, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Uh, So how crucial is it right now that you free up and get more shelter space? Well, our shelters are always very busy in the summer. It's kitten season. We have Tons of kittens coming in. So it's always a busy time, but particularly in the interior and moving north, we really want to be able to be there for as many animals um, coming from these families who have been displaced. One of the things that we do provide during the wildfires is emergency boarding, free emergency boarding for anyone who's had to leave their home. They may be staying in a hotel, but they can't keep their pets with them or staying with friends. Um, Same situation. So we want to be there so we can provide a safe place for their animal until they're able to come and claim them. So in order to do that, um, we decided that uh, we would have a 50% adoption promotion uh, July 20th to 30th, because if we can free up as much space in our 36 shelters right across the province, we can start transferring some of the homeless animals down to other shelters and then make sure that in those areas where the wildfires are really affecting families, we can just create as many spaces as possible so that we can be that safety net for them. All right. So with the fires currently burning, have you had to take in a lot of animals? Well, currently our focus is really in Kamloops, and we have uh, today 68 animals that we've taken in to provide um, free emergency boarding for people. I think there's 32 dogs, one puppy, 17 cats, and 18 kittens currently in our care, and that's both at our shelter, and we've set up an animal evacuation center, so um, we're taking in animals there as well. And, I mean, we just know, I mean... For some of these people, particularly people in Lytton, um, they've lost their homes. Other people are under order. They don't know what they're going back to. And it has to be such a devastating time. And so if knowing that their pets have a safe place to be until their lives get sorted out, if that can relieve just one of the strains that they're under, we're so happy to provide that. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just thinking that as well, that in scenarios, like you said, if you've lost your home and you're dealing with all of that, but even if uh, you're just under evacuation order and not that that's that, that, I mean, that's obviously also a very stressful situation, but on top of all of that, to have to deal with your pet, your animal and making sure your animal is safe, that just, you must be dealing with some very stressed out people. 
Absolutely. So as I say, if that's one little thing that we can take off their plate, uh, we're so happy to do that. And we have our staff and volunteers there providing, you know, loving care for them until they can go back home with their owners. And of course, their owners are, you know, more than welcome to come and visit with their pets and take them out for walks. And we just want to, you know, make this as normal as possible in in a situation that is just not normal for these people. And as I say, just to try and if there's one little stress we can take away from them, we want to be there for them. So let's talk a bit more then about the cut in the adoption fees. So a 50% cut in those fees. And are you, are you hoping people are more drawn to dogs or cats or does it matter what type of animal somebody's looking at? Uh, no. One thing that we do urge is that people not make a spontaneous decision to adopt with any of our adoptions, even when we're doing promotions. We always do the same counseling because we want to make sure that people understand the commitment that they're taking on for you know, the full length of that animal's life and that we're able to match them with a pet that's really going to fit into their home and their lifestyle because we want it to be a, a lifelong and a, an amazing experience for both the, the adopter and the pet. So um, we have every kind of animal you could imagine in our care, and people can find all the animals available for adoption online, and the adoption application process is online. So once they do that, they find an animal they're interested in and fill out the application. It's just a matter of then doing an in-person meet and greet to see if it's a good fit. I just have I pulled up the website to, in in anticipation because I knew you were coming on the program uh, to talk about this today, and I was a little surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be that under the featured pets there's William the rooster. If somebody's looking for a rooster, yes, there is fifty percent off farm animals as well. <laughs> if uh, if someone is looking, the only animals that aren't included in this is horses. Um, for this particular promotion. But, yes, we get everything from, um, you know, mice to emus to (laughs) everything uh, coming into our care. So it does include farm animals as well. Uh, You mentioned as well the the idea then is to free up that space and particularly free up space in the wildfire zones where we're seeing the active fires. So if somebody happens to be looking on the website and say they're in Vancouver or Burnaby or, or somewhere in Metro Vancouver and say they fall in love with an animal that in Port Alberni or Dawson Creek or somewhere not close. Does that matter? Well, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity to transfer animals in for people. We do have transfer vans, and they're all being used um, in the wildfires right now to transfer animals um, impacted by the fires around. So uh, we hope people will find an animal in their own community um, that they would like to adopt. And what we will do then is if we can clear out um, space in the lower mainland and on the island, we're able to transfer so many more of the homeless animals down into the lower mainland um, and on the islands. So hopefully if we can um, clear up space in our existing shelters, then we'll move more animals down from those busy areas. And as I say, um, really focus on creating capacity for those families who, who desperately need it right now. And you mentioned too, you want to make sure that's a good fit and people aren't making a, a really a snap decision doing this. Is there still a pretty lengthy process as far as when somebody does start the, the process of adoption, making sure their home is suitable and making sure that they've kind of thought of all of the things and the responsibilities that go with that? Well, it's not so much lengthy as we really try to be very thorough. And it's not so much, I think, judging is this home 
okay, obviously, you know, there's wonderful homes out there. It's really more making sure it's a good match. So, and it really depends on the animal's personality and the situations they've been through, because there may be, say, uh, a dog who is not going to be good in a busy household with a lot of kids just because they may have come from a little bit of a traumatic past and that's a bit frightening for them. So they might do really best in a home with, say, a retired couple um, who are going to be home a lot of the day and maybe a little less hectic home. So it's really about matching the needs of the animal, the needs of the adopters, because it's almost like a bit like a dating service where you want the relationship to work. So that's where we put our efforts is in the discussions with potential adopters to make sure that we're providing them with the absolute best pet for them. And how have things been as far as we've talked a little bit about before really the wildfire season started playing a role in this? We've talked about during the pandemic with so many people working from home and changing that scenario, adopting pets. Have you seen returns or or does it seem like people have really uh, gotten into the kind of the hang of that or that that they've they've made these homes and they they have forever homes? Well, we've actually been very fortunate because we've been hearing a lot of horror stories coming out of the United States with shelters that are just getting inundated with animals being returned as people head back to work. But we've always had a very low return rate, I think, because we do focus on our adoption counseling. So it's always been less than 5%. But since COVID and people are returning to kind of the new normal, we've actually seen that rate drop. So we're seeing even fewer animals returned. And I think part of that not only is the adoption counseling up front, but we've also been trying to provide as many resources for people to help them help their pet with the transition. So not only people going back to work, but they're also going you know, out more for recreational activities. So we've been providing tips on how to get your pet used to the new normal um, so that there will be fewer issues with those pets. And you mentioned off the top as well, so the 50% reduction in the adoption fee. Are you, can, do you have the numbers? What does that mean for somebody, say, if you're adopting a dog or a cat? What does that mean for the pricing of that? Well, it actually varies community by community because the adoption fees for, for smaller communities where the cost of living is much higher or the, you know, it just um, a community, they're not going to have the ability to pay. So it can really range anything from uh, the highest where it might be a couple of hundred dollars um, for, a, you know, a dog to, you know, $80. Um, for an animal, but it really ranges. But each branch across the province has their um, adoption fees broken down on their webpage, so you can see exactly in your community what the adoption fees are. All right. So the best thing then for anybody who's hearing this or maybe has been considering adopting a furry family member, go to the website and figure out kind of the area and what's available out there? Absolutely. And uh, we really do appreciate when people consider adoption as an option for bringing a new pet in because, I mean, we have animals coming in continually into our shelters and they may come from cruelty investigations. They may come through families that just can't care for them anymore. And they're amazing animals and they're there not because of, you know, any defect of their own or any fault. It's just that people couldn't or wouldn't care for them. But they're amazing animals who really deserve a second chance. And, you know, they just, our experience have been these animals bring so much joy to people. So um, we really appreciate when people do make that choice to adopt. 
All right. Uh, look, I, again, as I mentioned, I, I pulled up the website knowing that you were joining us on the show. And I wish I wish I had a giant farm somewhere that I could just welcome all of the animals to. <laughs> Alas, <laughs> I am in a scenario like many others. That's not possible. But hopefully if anyone's been listening to this and they have been looking to expand, uh, they can do that. Lori, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for helping us get the word out.